from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I have another great show for you today. But first, I have the usual housekeeping items before I get started. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes for Still Growing over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes. Or head on over to iTunes and give me a review there and you can get the show as well. And if you happen to be listening on Stitcher Radio, hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner. I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, so let me share a little bit about what is happening around here. It's been a great week in the garden. A lot of my planting and relocating plants is behind me, and now I just need to keep up with the weeding and the harvesting. We had a little contest to see who could pull the biggest weed, and uh, I'm ashamed to say I had a five-foot tall thistle hiding among my queen of the prairie, so... As embarrassing as that was, I was thrilled to get it out of there. I have two projects that I will be writing about on my blog this week. The first is how to convert your backyard playset into an adult relaxation set. I've recently purchased some hammock chairs, and I'm slowly converting our backyard swing set into a hammock chair set. And I'm adding some nice features like ropes to help swing the hammock chairs, as well as an awning over the top to provide shade. So really taking that tired old swing set that the kids aren't using anymore and turning it into something that is really suited for myself and my friends to come over and just relax and have a great time with um, and enjoy the hammock chairs. I'll have pictures of the renovation on my blog this week. The second project is an adorable little fountain do-it-yourself project. I take an old wash tub and add some old dishes, a pipe, uh, a pump, and some sprinkler tubing, and I fashion together an old wash tub full of dishes, and the fountain cycles through the water um, out of a spigot, and it just looks like um, I'm washing dishes in a tub outside. It's really adorable. It looks so amazing with little dish soap and some bubbles on top. I had this fountain in my garden a few years ago when I was in a tour, and that little fountain was a showstopper. So I'm happy to share that on the blog this week. Now for the focus of my show today, which is our lovely guest, Beth Dooley. I call her the queen of the farmer's market, and I'm so lucky to have her with me. Beth is a cookbook writer and author, and she recently published Minnesota's Bounty, the Farmer's Market Cookbook. Beth is a restaurant critic for Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. She writes for the taste section of the Star Tribune, and she's covered the food scene in the Twin Cities for over 25 years. Beth has three boys, and so do I, so I think we can relate to the need to keep hunger at bay in our homes. And Beth is here today because she really is a farmer's market epicure. Welcome, Beth. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay, so before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of cookbook writing. You know, I love to write. I've always been a writer, and 
I taught English, and I had a grandmother who loved to cook. And I grew up in New Jersey, um, which at one point really was the Garden State. We had gorgeous Jersey tomatoes, beautiful sweet corn, lovely peaches and blueberries. And I would go with my grandmother to the farmer's farm stands and the farmer's markets on our way down to the Jersey Shore. And uh, when I was first out of school, I took a job in Princeton for the Princeton Packet, which is a weekly that covered that area. And my beat was the zoning and planning board. And it was during that period of time that developers began to buy up farms and turn them over to shopping malls and uh, schools and condos. And within that two-year period, a lot of that farmland disappeared. So gone were the beautiful Jersey peaches, gone were the blueberries, gone were those lovely tomatoes. And it wasn't until I landed in Minneapolis years ago that I realized how much I'd missed that fresh local food. And it was just astounding to me on my first trip to the farmer's market, I had one of those Christian moments where I tasted a carrot that tasted like a carrot, like the kind of carrots my grandmother used to serve. And that's when I began to put together the pieces around what makes good flavor. And what makes good flavor is where food is grown, how it's grown, and who grows it. And I, you know, that story began to reveal itself through these many years of researching flavor and food and then beginning to understand the issues around what it takes to raise good food. And I have to say that I've learned a ton from the farmers at the farmer's markets, um, probably more about cooking than any place else, because in those conversations, I learned, you know, how they grew the food, but also what went into growing it. I had lots of great conversations with farmers about what to do with that food. Beth, how many cookbooks have you written, and how has your process for writing them evolved? Seven. Seven um, cookbooks. And, uh-huh. And one of them, the, the one that I think is probably one of the strongest is the one that I wrote with Lucia Watson, who owns Lucia's Restaurant, which is a fabulous, fabulous restaurant. And Lucia understood early on, she was probably the first restaurateur in our area, to really understand the importance of local food, the important, its importance not only to flavor, but to the local economy. And so she began sourcing all of her food locally and uh, built her menu around, um, you know, her menu changes weekly. So everything has to come in fresh and, um, you know, just from these small farms. And it's been the collaboration she's had with those small farmers that has made that restaurant what it is. And so in writing that cookbook, I learned a lot, both about food and about cooking. And then I went from there to write uh, Northern Heartland Kitchen, which sort of continues that story. Um, And then the Farmer's Market cookbook focuses on the Farmer's Market and a lot of things that have changed over time with the influx of immigrant farmers and new technologies like uh, hoop houses and um, high tunnels and that kind of thing. Sure. And the the cookbook that you referenced with Lucia, is that Savoring the Seasons? Yes, that's Savoring the Seasons of the Northern Heartland. That's right. Okay. And that actually came out about almost, uh, came out about 20 years ago. Wow. Does it seem like it's been that long? Yeah. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's still very relevant. And I think it's, it, it is because... 
in that book, we really tried to define what this region is in terms of its cooking. We had a wonderful editor, Judith Jones, who was the uh, editor at Knopf who discovered Julia Child. So you couldn't ask for a better editor. And she had this vision for a series of cookbooks that really told the story of America through its food. And so we were part of a series of books that focused on Southern cooking and food from the Pacific Northwest and uh, New England cooking. But she realized that the Northern Heartland was different than the Southern Midwest, that we don't have a lot in common with Kansas. And so she was one of the first people to say, we're not just going to have a Midwest cookbook, we're going to have a Northern Heartland cookbook, because our region is quite different than the Southern middle part of the country. She was also a bit of a visionary then, too. She really was. She really was. She was way ahead of her time. Um, Really wonderful, wonderful woman. She's written a number of books herself. Now, how has your process for writing cookbooks evolved? The process, you know, it's a really interesting process, writing a cookbook. It's a mixture of narrative and instructional writing. And what I've loved is reading how other people approach the subject. You have people like, you know, the early sort of literary cookbook writers like Emmett K. Fisher or Jane Grigson that tell the story behind the food and then offer a recipe. And then you have cookbooks that come out from Betty Crocker, for instance, that pretty much tell you to stand on your left foot and stir with your right hand. Um, and their measurements are so exacting and there's not a lot of district, uh, you know, narrative, but there's the uh, instructions are very crisp and very exacting. And I like to think that I fall somewhere in the middle um, because I, I want not only for the recipes to work because the quantities are accurate, the timing is right. But I also want the cook to feel really engaged in the process as though I'm standing next to them, helping them create something and also to feel liberated from the recipe itself so that they're not stuck to the recipe. So for instance, if they don't have asparagus, if asparagus isn't in the market, when they go down to the market thinking that they're going to make asparagus soup that day, maybe they'll find peas and or maybe they'll make the soup out of a variety of lettuces. So my recipes are written loosely enough that the cook can, can take ownership and make it his or her dish and, and season it to taste. And, you know, because part of what happens when you're using really fresh produce like this is I can't tell you exactly how ripe the tomato you are using. You know, tomatoes vary greatly depending on the time of year they come from, what variety they are what the soil is like if they're grown. So I may have a super ripe tomato when I'm making up that recipe and testing it, and you may end up with a tomato that's a little bit underripe. Well, you're going to have to adjust for the flavors. So I'm hoping that the instructions in the book guide the reader into doing that. Well, and folks really need to approach the farmer's market and then the cooking that follows with an open mind. Yeah, and that's the fun of it. It's really spontaneous. It's, you know, I call it not reactive cooking, but engaged cooking, because you really have to pay attention to, to what's there in a nice way. It's it's responsive. You know, you're responding to things that are coming in, and that makes it a creative process, more of a give and take. Yes. Now, what was the genesis for your idea for a farmer's market cookbook? I think it's because our farmers markets are astounding. We have markets like no other state in the country, I think anyway. And that may just be my parochial sort of 
vision for what the state is about. And like any newcomer, I've fallen head, head and heels, you know, in love with the place because it's so different from what I experienced growing up. But I think because we really do have a farming culture here that we celebrate the markets and the people understand what they're about and really appreciate them. Um, and, you know, I, I just am a, I'm amazed every time I go into a farmer's market by how good the food is and how much fun it is to shop for food that way. And so I wanted to share that enthusiasm with people and get them excited about doing the same. And Meta Nielsen, who was a photographer on the book and a dear friend of mine and a fabulous cook and gardener in her own right, did a, just a knockout job with with the photos in the book. She's awesome. I really agree with you, Beth. I think that Meta did a fantastic job. The cookbook is not only beautifully written, but also the photographs are very vivid and inspiring. And I think that the matte finish gives the entire book an earthy feel, and it strikes a chord with our food gathering instincts. I know I've had the book along with me as I've met girlfriends for dinner and just been out and about with people, and everybody's commented how pretty the book is. And I've had it displayed in my kitchen for the last couple of weeks and people always are drawn to it and they pick it up and they start going through it. And one of the things that I've been struck by is that I have to be very honest with you and say that even as a gardener, I didn't even recognize some of the vegetables that you feature in your cookbook. And my friends have also said the same. So aside from corn, beans, peas, and squash, what are some of the vegetables that many of us have been overlooking? Because we've kind of lost the art of gathering food, haven't we? Boy, that's a great question. And you know, I, I have um, three adult sons. And they all love to cook, but their friends are a little afraid of cooking. And there have been a number of times where I've taken their friends down to the farmer's market to shop with them because they think markets are really cool, but they'll go down and buy a donut and listen to the music and then go home because they feel overwhelmed. And so what I started doing is just going down with them and saying, let's get this, let's get that, let's go home and try it. And people love doing that. And then they relax a little bit and engage a little more. Yes, and some of the vendors do a better job than others of maybe putting themselves out there and offering samples and things of that nature. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think, too, people are hesitant. Minnesotans especially are hesitant to be aggressive shoppers. You know, they they see something that looks interesting, but they're afraid to ask questions. So it's always lovely when the farmer tries to engage them. But some farmers don't, and so you have to ask questions. Yeah. You know, we're seeing things like ginger, for instance, fresh ginger root, which looks different than the ginger you find in the store that comes in from Hawaii. It looks a little bit like fat green onion. You wouldn't know that it's fresh ginger until you sniff it or taste it. Um, and the mung are doing a great job growing that. And there's a farm down south in Winona called White Water Farm that also does a beautiful job with ginger. Um, a lot of people still aren't familiar with kohlrabi. If you have a CSA box, you're probably very familiar with it because it grows like crazy. It looks like a spaceship. It looks like a spaceship just landed on your kitchen counter. It's sort of an odd-shaped ball. It's either cabbage red or pale green, and it's tentacles, it looks like. but It's really the leaves that stick out from it, and it's delicious shredded and tossed into a coleslaw or chopped and thrown into a stir-fry. You can make a creamy soup out of it. It's got a flavor that's a cross between a 
a cabbage and a very mild turnip. But I love it. I think it's delicious. Now, there's a lot of talk about sustainability. Can you tell our audience what that means? You know, sustainability has to do with how the food is grown. Is it grown in a way that's responsible without chemicals, without um, any kind of pesticides or petrochemical fertilizers or um, uh, herbicides? And it's, it's grown in a way that also replenishes the earth. So in other words, a sustainable farmer will plant cover crops to help fertilize the earth and, and retain the nutrients in the soil. Um, a healthy farm is one that has a lot of microbial activity in it, and that happens when you continue to keep plantings going. Um, it means that you're not creating a lot of runoff. The large lettuce farms in California, where there's a lot of replanting of lettuces, even if they're organic, aren't terribly sustainable because you're losing a lot of the topsoil when you use those practices. So a sustainable farmer is paying attention to topsoil loss as well um, and always has something going on on the farm. So it's important that, that each farm really be its own ecosystem. You know, a good sustainable farmer will use friendly pests will use perhaps uh, no-till practices and terrace the farmland so that the water doesn't run off. Um, and in addition, a sustainable farm is one that, that pays a fair wage to the farmers and the interns that work there, either through trade by providing housing and food for the interns along with instructions on how to, how to farm this way, um, or by paying a fair wage to the workers who are there just to, to get a paycheck. Um, and in addition, a, a small farm makes a tremendous contribution to the community because they're selling food to the community and all that money that stays within a local economy returns money to that economy. So that's what sustainability means. I think we as, as shoppers also ought to understand that we need to pay a fair price for that food, that if we want people to farm that way, then we need to recognize all that goes into it um, when we purchase that food. Absolutely. And is sustainability a criteria? Is it something that you look at or talk to the vendor about as you're trying to determine if that's somebody you want to continue to buy from? Absolutely. And those are the kinds of questions everyone should feel free to ask. What are your practices? Who works on your farm? Do you use chemicals? Those kinds of things. Because at the farmer's market, not everyone is organic certified. And I think organic certification is tremendously important to our food system, but it really is more important for large-scale farms and for food that's coming in from other states because that's the, the USDA seal of approval that um, practices and protocols have been followed to the letter. It provides a trail if something goes wrong. But the smaller farmers that are really only selling their food on weekend and this supplements their income, many of them can't afford to um, to be organic certified. And they also don't have time to do all the paperwork. It's a tremendous burden on the farmer. And so by asking questions about sustainability, if you're dealing with a local farmer, then you're pretty much guaranteed that he's using practices that, that you value as well. Now, what's the typical reaction on the part of a vendor when you say, hey, are you using sustainable practices? Under law, they have to tell you how they farm. 
And, you know, these guys watch each other and these women watch each other. And if someone is using chemicals and they're lying about it, they'll be called out by the farmer, farm oh. stand next to them. Really? They, you know, yeah, it's it's a really interesting culture. They really watch out for each other. And they they have a lot of integrity, frankly, because to grow good food on a small farm, you have to use best practices. Or your food isn't going to taste as good. You can taste chemicals in carrots. And that's why the carrots, some of the carrots that are conventionally grown, you can taste the chemicals in them. Um, you have a much better product if you use right practices. And to me, that's one of the biggest lessons about that kind of farming is that it's really teaching us, again, how to do things the right way, how not to cut corners, you know, how to pay attention, those kinds of things. Let's talk a little bit about Minnesota's farmers markets. How many different farmers markets in the state did you visit when you were researching the book? Boy, that's a great question. There are probably about 50 markets around the state. Of course, we didn't. I would like to say we hit all of them, but we didn't. We went to about 20 markets at least. And every time I was in a town, I'd always try and seek out a market. It's astounding the variety of markets we have. Some of them are teeny tiny. They're in a little strip mall maybe with five or six vendors. Some of them are huge, like the St. Paul Farmers Market. So we they cut a wide swath. And you actually spend a little time in your cookbook sharing the history of Minnesota farmers markets. Can you tell us about what makes our market special? Yeah, you know, the St. Paul market is the oldest continuous retail market in the country, which I think is astounding. The city fathers of St. Paul back in the mid-1800s understood the value and the importance of a farmer's market to an urban community. So that was the nexus that brought the, connected the rural and the urban people. And I think that's really, really important. And it speaks to the values that they built into that city charter. Um, and of course, what's nice about the St. Paul market is that the farmers who run that market agreed about 20 years ago that every vendor must come from a 50 mile radius. So there's no, um, you know, resale at St. Paul farmers market. Some of the vendors at the St. Paul far- at the uh, Minneapolis farmers market are resellers because they come from the history of wholesaling. That market began as a wholesale market, and it originally supplied the um, grocery stores and the restaurants, and there was no retail component to it. And then as those restaurants and grocery stores began buying directly from the farmers on the West Coast, those farmers began to open the um, uh, suppliers at that market began opening up their sales to retail customers. So how have farmers markets changed over the past several years? They've become um, increasingly local, actually. I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things that happened. Global warming has had an impact on what we're able to grow. Um, And as a result, we're seeing fruits like cherries and apricots and more varieties of plums at the market that we've never seen before. In addition, there are new green technologies that are extending the seasons, like hoop houses and gray water um, and solar greenhouses that allow farmers to grow things longer than they ever have before. So we'll see tomatoes for a longer period of time, for instance. And in addition, we're seeing an influx of um, immigrants that are bringing their new foodways with them. So 
we're seeing uh, Somali farmers along with the different Asian farmers. We've had Hmong for a long time, and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated around the kinds of things that they're growing that, that are part of their heritage foods. And they're getting integrated into what we're buying now at the farmer's markets, aren't they? Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. So it's exciting. You know, I mean, they're very vibrant. They're wonderful places of of commerce and also of culture. Um, And I, you know, the other thing we're seeing is a lot of the small food processors get their start at the farmer's markets before they go into the larger food system. So Cedar Summit Farm, for instance, which is a beautiful dairy got their start at the St. Paul Farmer's Market before they began distributing to the rest of the the region. Now, what are some of the challenges you think farmer's markets face? Land access is huge for small farmers, and that's that's the biggest issue of the time right now. It's um, Land is becoming increasingly expensive in the urban ring, and so the small farmers can no longer afford to rent land the way they used to, and it's almost impossible to buy. So unless we crack that nut, we're going to see fewer farmers in the next five, 10 years. And that that's worrisome. Absolutely. You know, I was at a community garden here locally. And I as I was standing in this garden, the person in charge said there are 250 plots in this garden. And it was almost, you know, defying my ability to comprehend because it seemed like such a small space. Yeah. But but the plots are six by six. So when you have, you know, that tiny of a plot, absolutely, you can fit it in there. So but but they're really crammed in and they have to maximize every inch. It makes a difference. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, are there best practices from other parts of the world that Minnesota or other markets could employ? to be even more impactful? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. One of the issues in Minneapolis especially is we don't have a municipal system running the markets. So all the markets are pretty much independent except for the uh, large Minneapolis market down off Lindale Avenue. There is a market on Thursdays on Nicollet Mall um, Thursday afternoons, but there's no centralized, you know, there's no centralized body that runs all of the farmer's markets. In in Boston, for instance, there's a market every day of the week. And if we could centralize the schedule so that we had them more spread out, it would be easier on the farmers and it would be great for us shoppers because we could go to a market almost every night. I know for myself that's challenging because with four kids, I Thursday comes around and if I'm not at the farmer's market volunteering as a master gardener, I forget. And yeah. then Friday morning yeah. I'm kicking myself because I don't have anything from the farmer's market. Right. That's right. That's right. So if there was another market on a, you know, a day, two days later or something, it'd be way easier. And I think the demand is there for more high quality, local grown fresh foods. So I'm optimistic it's going to happen someday that we'll have a much more rigorous farmer's market schedule in the future. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, do you have a favorite farmer's market, one that's kind of near and dear to your heart? Boy, that's like saying who's your best friend, right? You know, I I really love the uh, Mill City Market down right next to the Guthrie Theater. It's it's small, and yet it's got everything, and most of the farmers are actually certified organic. There's some very good farmers there, and it's just a really nice scene. I love the big Minneapolis Farmers Market, you know, for all its hustle and bustle, and I've got some good friends who are farmers that, that sell there. I love the St. Paul market because of its history and um, 
just because it's it's so urban, it's so diversified. I, you know, it's really hard to name a market that's my favorite. It's like picking your favorite child, right? It is exactly right. Exactly right. So we've touched on this a little bit, that farmers markets can be a little overwhelming for folks. Why do you think that is? And how can you help folks get past that? You know, I think they're overwhelming because when you walk in, it's such a hustle bustle and there's all this food and you don't know where to start. And it's just overwhelming. But I think um, what I like to do is grab a cup of coffee, make a quick loop of the market, and then just start to shop. You know, make a loop and sort of let your eye land on a few things that look great and then just shop. And fill your basket up, and when it's too heavy to haul back to the car, stop. <laughs> that's that's when you stop yourself. That's when I stop. Now, do you ever? I also, you know, sometimes I'll just bring a certain amount of cash because I really love to shop the markets, and and I always buy more than I can use. So I will like only put so much money in my pocket, and then I then I have to stop. And bringing cash is a great tip for people, right? We need to bring cash to those markets. <sighs> Yeah, I think it's important. Some farmers use a square and they'll take your visa, but not many. I know another tip I have from being a Master Gardener volunteer at Farmers Markets is to go early or go late. Markets tend to be less crowded right when they open or just before they close. And obviously for the best selection, go to the Farmers Market early because the best goods do go first. And popular or limited items sell out sometimes even before the day is done. So um, it's as simple as that. Get there early and make sure you know when your farmer's market opens. So note the start time on your calendar on your phone and you can get an alert and that will help remind you as well. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, do you ever utilize the information booths, like the general information booth, as a way to really help you target maybe some of the most popular vendors that are at the farmer's market before you get going? Boy, that's a great question. Those booths are very, very helpful. They also often have recipes, and they will, if you're looking for something in particular, especially a big market, they'll direct you to that vendor. So they're helpful for that, yeah. And they'll also tell you what the schedule of events are, if a, like you, if there's a master gardener there or if there's going to be a band, if there are kids' activities, they'll call those out. Beth, I know you and I have talked a little bit about the fact that if you know what to expect when you get to the farmer's market, making decisions with each of the vendors is much easier. And learning what grows in your area when and talking to the growers about what will be coming to a market in the upcoming weeks is really important. In fact, you describe farmer's markets as living calendars. And I know gardeners who do this too, because for every crop that we're planting, that we plan the sowing, we know when the tending needs to be done, and we're already planting the harvest even as we're planting the seeds. And you really extend that calendar by noting when the harvest is arriving at the market. Tell us more about thinking of the farmer's market as an extension of that living calendar. Yeah, you know, you, it, it is, it's, it's really fun. You kind of know, oh, it must be August, the corn is in, or oh, it's got to be... Um, September, the apples are, the early wealthy apples are starting, those kinds of things. So I, I sort of plot, you know, my own thinking and my, the own rhythms of how we live by knowing what's, 
what's going to be next. And sometimes it's just as simple as making sure to ask the grower, hey, what's coming in next week? Can you re- can you let me know a preview of what I can expect? Or um, what are some of your upcoming crops? What are you looking forward to? What's looking great in the field right now? Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, your cookbook is not just recipes. What are some of your favorite really quick ideas from the cookbook? Boy, you know, I think soups are probably the easiest thing to make. Um, simply stir fry some aromatics, some onions or garlic and a little bit of oil and add some herbs and then add whatever vegetable is there and throw in some stock or some water or some wine and you've got a soup and maybe add a little cream. That's, you know, that's one of the quickest tips I have. Um, it's really simple to make a salad dressing and toss all kinds of things together. You know, I, I can't, you know, I need to have the food in front of me to know what I'm going to do with it. It's, it's, you sort of let the food direct you, you know, I mean, it's, um, you like grilling asparagus, try grilling green beans, you know, it's that kind of thing. And so just the substitution method is kind of a great way for gardeners to start expanding how they use their harvest. That's right. That's exactly right. Sometimes it really is as simple as just getting creative with how you're using your foods. I saw in your cookbook that you suggest one of your quick tips is to substitute pears for apples in your recipes. And so I started doing that because my husband loves pears. And another quick tip that I particularly am fond of was shaving asparagus for summer salads. Because I love asparagus, but sometimes just doing the same old thing with it just isn't as exciting. And so I started shaving the asparagus. And it's a it's a little thing, but I just think it's in our nature to look for new and exciting things to do in the kitchen with our food. So one last thing I wanted to quickly mention is that I loved your idea for doing a simple, sweet carrot puree because I've got two carrot lovers in my family and I've done mashed potatoes and I've done the smashed cauliflower, but I hadn't pureed or hadn't thought to puree um, carrots. So I just followed your quick tip or your quick idea and I pureed the carrots with a little heavy cream or sour cream and I've added salt and pepper and nutmeg to taste and the kids gobble it up. So that's what, that was another one of your quick ideas that I really liked in the book. That's because when you pay attention to the kind of food that it is, you begin to understand that you know there's so many similarities between different kinds of vegetables. Um, you know, actually, Deborah Madison has a wonderful book called Vegetable Literacy. Yes. Where she she puts, you know, puts the, she writes it so that you understand that the vegetables are in different families. And that then helps inform you as to what seasonings to use. So you know that carrots, for instance, are part of the caraway family. And, um, and so then putting caraway seeds on carrots after you've sauteed them makes so much sense. You're right. And her cookbook, just like yours, is a beautiful book. And it's very groundbreaking in its approach because it does show the relationship between vegetables, edible flowers, herbs, and familiar wild plants. And she groups them within the same botanical families. And it's been a fascinating read for me this summer. I'm not even all the way through it because I'm learning so much as I go. I'm taking so many notes that I've just had to make sure that I'm I'm slowing down as I'm taking in that information 
information. There's just so much there. But she really does a wonderful job of showing the plants that go together within the families. And once you understand that, you really grasp what foods would go together as you're cooking. They go together, correct, yeah. Yeah, the same thing is true of roots, for instance. You know, beets and carrots and turnips, and they're all root vegetables. So you can treat them all pretty much the same. You're right. I've got a girlfriend that loves to mix her root vegetables, be they potatoes or sweet potatoes, carrots, turnips, rutabagas, celery root or beets, any type of root vegetable. She almost always tries to make a medley. And the other thing she does that I love is uh, she grills them. And I think once you've had that flavor, too, it's it's a... Um, taste you want to go back to again and again. I just had Terry Chaffer on from the oilery and she talked about brushing the vegetables liberally with olive oil and then sprinkling them with salt and cooking them on a grill until they're grill marked and tender about 10 minutes per side. So it's a fabulous way to to use uh, root vegetables. Now do you do a lot with edible flowers? Do you like to incorporate that into your cooking? Yeah, I do. They're wonderful. They're like using herbs, and they're so pretty. I mean, is there anything better than nasturtiums, for instance, or squash flowers, or zucchini blossoms, that kind of thing? I mean, you can eat almost you can eat the flower of almost any plant. I love chive flowers. They're pretty, and they make a beautiful vinegar. Now, before we get into the recipes featured in your cookbook, let's chat a little bit about the effect that recipes have had on cooking. You actually say in your cookbook that you don't like recipes, period. Do you think we're too recipe-focused when it comes to cooking? I do because they can be very constraining. Um, I don't want people not to make something because they don't have rosemary, for instance. Use thyme instead or... um, cut the herb out completely and use lemon juice. I mean, you can, you know, the, the, I think people are so locked into recipes that they forget to think for themselves, whereas recipes should really be guidelines. And I, you know, I, I was being cheeky when I said that. I love reading recipes, but I very seldom follow a recipe. So I'll read them for ideas, and I may use them as guidelines to quantity and maybe cooking times, but I, I never follow them exactly. This is maybe a result of our focus as a society on book learning, right? Yeah, I think so. And on test taking and everything else. Did I do it right? You know, I mean, we're always, you know, we're we're afraid, I think, sometimes to pay attention to what we really think or what we feel like doing. And have you noticed talking to your gardening friends that it seems like sometimes gardeners uh, don't make the best use of their the produce that they're growing. It's like um, I was talking to a friend who's a gardener, and she said, oh, I just grow it for sport. I know. It's true. It's fun. But, you know, I love those kind of gardeners because they let me come forward to their gardens. You know? Yes. Well, that's the key is we probably need to get on Craigslist or something and say, foragers, welcome. I think I think so. I would love that because the truth is I'm not a very good gardener, and we have a very shady yard. So there's not much, you know, I grow tomatoes and pots on the patio and I've got a few peas going, but it's, you know, and rhubarb maybe and some kale and maybe some lettuce, but that's about it. So I love it if somebody's got a great big garden, they can't use everything in. I, yeah. And I think that's the case with a lot of gardeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said in my review of your cookbook that I had never cooked with ginger, and you mentioned earlier about how great our ginger is, and I personally want to make your sweet ginger potatoes. Oh, but good. what can you tell us about cooking with ginger? You know, you just want to be careful. The fresh ginger is milder 
and a little bit sweeter than the ginger we find in the grocery store. But start with a little bit and then add to taste. And you'll get the flavor of it right away. It's not the kind of ingredient you need to cook to draw out the flavor. So just add it slowly, add a little bit at a time, and taste and see what you think. And that might be universal advice then to trying any of these new uh, crops from the farmer's market for novice cooks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Start small, start gently. Tastes like crazy. Now let's talk about some of the recipes in your cookbook that you're especially pleased with. Can you share some of the ones that are near and dear to your heart? Well, I love that sweet potato recipe. I love sweet potatoes in general. I think they're great. I love tomatoes. Some of the tomato recipes are in there are terrific. There's a tomato bread salad that is I'm very fond of. You mean the panzanella recipe. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. We've got a nice savory applesauce. And most people don't think to make applesauce as savory with either sage or rosemary, but it's a wonderful accompaniment to pork. Yes, and I saw your pork roast or porchetta recipe with fennel and pears. I thought that looked delicious. Yeah, it's, it's nice. And then... Um, there's a jam. It's a strawberry uh, balsamic basil jam that's fabulous on a mild cheese as a condiment. I saw that, and it looks very easy to make. Yeah. It's also really good on a um, turkey sandwich, for instance, because it's sweet, but it's got a bite to it. I have to just add that I love your maple mustard vinaigrette on chicken. Yeah. You know, I like playing with those kinds of flavors in really simple ways. What are some things when you go to the farmer's market that you're that are always on your list? Like your your top three or five things that no matter what the season, you're going to make sure you get at the farmer's market? Oh, that's a great question. Um, potatoes, you know, because potatoes are a crop that except in the very early spring, you'll usually find them. The difference between a fresh potato and a potato that's been sitting in a plastic bag in a grocery bin is astounding. And the flavor of those potatoes will change through the season as the potatoes mature. Early on, they're very delicate and almost sweet. Um, And then as they get a little bit older, they begin to develop a more nutty flavor. And towards the end of the season, they taste almost earthy. So I think the evolution of flavors in potatoes is fascinating. Um, carrots, again, and um, like potatoes, tender and sweet early on. And then towards the end, of the, their, their flavors evolve. Um, towards the end of the season, they get a little more flavor, flavorful, a little more robust. They'll stand up to longer periods of time cooking. Um, the same thing with, uh, I would say, the lettuces. Kale is wonderful as a baby lettuce, but then it will get larger and tougher and tastes better if it's cooked down at the very end of the season. Now, I've heard you talk about the Hmong farming community in other interviews. What are the Hmong farmers bringing to the farmer's market that we should be trying? A world of peppers. Their peppers are fascinating. And that's, you know, one of the the fun things about the Hmong is that a lot of them now are second and third generation. So the children of the um, earlier immigrants speak English fluently and are often very good cooks and they're happy to share with you how to use the different variety peppers. They have everything from very mild peppers to really searing hot peppers. And then they've got some wonderful herbs. Um, And if you ask them about some of the healing herbs that have different medicinal properties, I always find that fascinating. Tetsoy is a wonderful green that we're seeing more of. Um, And that's an Asian herb that's used in salads and also in soups. And it's got a nice, almost minty, but but bitter note to it. Um, that's another one to look for. Um, different kinds of cilantro. There's 
and I can't remember the two different varieties, but, but if you see two different types of cilantro on a table, ask what they're used for. Same thing with basil. There's the um, Asian basil and then our the globe basil, which is the, um, the one that we're most familiar with for making pestos and things with a great big leaf. But the Asian basil has a tiny leaf and it's very um, spicy almost. So it's fun to talk about them. Um, you know, talk about the different herbs and find out how they use them. Yeah, and it's a good reminder that we really need to go into that farmer's market with a seeker mentality. Yes, exactly right. That's a good way to put it. That's a wonderful way to put it. Now, there's a small section in your cookbook that's devoted to cheeses. Is, uh-huh. is that a growing part of the farmer's markets? I haven't seen that in our local market. It is. It is. And I hope you see more of it soon. Um, the markets, farmers markets are a great outlet for a lot of these small cheese makers because, um, especially with sheep's milk and goat's milk cheese, those animals don't give tons of milk and so they don't make lots of cheese and the best place for them to sell it is at the farmers market because they can then reap um, the full price for their efforts. And most of those cheeses are, are artisan, they're handmade, they're farmstead cheeses, they're delicious. And the thing I find most exciting about them is that those cheeses, the flavor of those cheeses will change over time at the market so that early in the season when the um, animals are just beginning to forage and have come off hay, you'll get a very light, delicate cheese. And towards the end of the summer into the fall where they're eating, you know, a bigger variety of the grasses and the grasses are starting to to dry out a little bit, you get a, a richer, more robust cheese. And then, of course, the, the amount of time those cheeses are aged by that farmer um, will change the flavor of the cheese, too. And it's fun because you can you, know, you taste things that you wouldn't find it ever in the grocery store, and you're talking to the person who made them. You're right. The other thing I'm curious to get your opinion on is honey. Yeah. Do, do you yeah. get honey there? And what tips or advice can you give us about buying honey at a farmer's market? Yeah, that's, you know, I've loved it. Honey, again, comes with a million assorted flavors. And if you can find a purveyor that is selling single source honey, like Ames honey, they're, they're, they call honey from bees that feed on different flowers. So you can find clover honey and basswood honey and buckwheat honey and dandelion honey. And they all have distinct flavors. It's astounding how different honey can taste. It is. And I just have to say that I love your radish, cucumber, and mint salad. Uh, First of all, it's so colorful, but also because you have honey in the dressing that goes on it. It's a honey cider vinegar dressing. And I'm just hooked on it. And I just think it's such a pretty salad for summer. So that's another one people can try if they're interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Another recipe you've got that's got a little bit of honey in it is your skillet flatbread. And of course, with kids, the ages that my kids are, you know, flatbread is, that goes over great at our house. Recently, I've been reading another cookbook by Tama Matsuoka. It's called The Foraged Flavor. And yeah, and she is actually uh, foraging for restaurants in New York City. And she's, finding weeds, basically, and bringing them into these restaurants. And um, she was sharing them with some of her Japanese friends and relatives. And they said, hey, those are delicacies over here. And so they're integrating those weeds into the the cooking in these uh, restaurants in New York, and people are going crazy for it. Have you seen that kind of an item in our farmer's markets? Um, Not 
quite, although I am seeing things like nettles, which used to be considered a weed or something you wanted to eradicate if you found it, where when in fact nettles are incredibly nutritious and, um, and delicious. You know, they make a great pesto. They make a wonderful soup. So I think we'll start seeing more of those kinds of things. Some of the field greens are often wild greens um, that people are foraging. There is a, a woman um, at the Mill City Market, Pam Benneke, who forages. And she has often has morel mushrooms and wonderful uh, woodier mushrooms and um, anoki. And then she also has a variety of greens. Some of them, I think, are wild greens, although I couldn't tell you what the names of them are. Now, what are some of the connections you've made about companion ingredients, for example, that are certain winners with some of the veggies we buy at farmer's markets? That's a great question. Um, you know, we're talking about flavors and how to, how to pair flavors, right? Yes. So... It's a pretty sure bet that anything with tomatoes is going to pop if you put a little bit of citrus or orange with it. And the same thing, um, tomatoes and basil seem to be just a natural companion. Um, Root vegetables, which are are basically mild and earthy tasting, seem to resound when you put a little bit of ginger in there because they're kind of sweet. And so the heat in the ginger makes them sing. Or with those same root vegetables, instead of ginger, if you put a few chilies with them, that always sort of, you know, makes them pop again. And I guess what I'm saying is if you think about the flavor of the primary ingredient and what those flavor notes are, whether it's um, earthy and mild or whether it's sweet or tart, then you either want to do things, do one of two things. You want to either want to balance it out with something that is at the other end of the flavor spectrum, or you want to find something that's more of a companion that's closer in flavor. What types of oils do you like to cook with? You know, I love the variety of, of cold pressed oils because you can taste the flavor of the oil and the oil itself will add notes to whatever it is you're either cooking or making a dressing out of. Um, you know, there's some wonderful extra virgin olive oils that have different flavor profiles. The ones that come out of um, Tuscany, for instance, tend to be real peppery and distinct. And those are great to season a soup with, to season a minestrone with, or to top a steak with. And then some of the milder oils out of California um, are really, really good in a mild salad dressing with delicate grains. I love the new oils that are coming out of our area that are sunflower oils because they have almost a nutty flavor. Um, They taste a little bit like sunflower, and they're great in a dressing, but they're also great to cook with. Uh, uh, Olive oil is volatile. It has a a low smoke point, so you don't want to saute very high heat using a good olive oil because it will burn or you'll lose the delicate flavors in it. It's great used cold in a dressing or as a seasoning. But with the sunflower oil, you can use, the heat doesn't damage its flavor. And it, you can cook at a very high temperature with the sunflower oil. And those are local oils. Now, is that sunflower oil kind of your go-to oil then when you're doing the high heat cooking? It is, but only if I'm using a little bit of it. Um, okay. It's fairly expensive. It's about 10 bucks a bottle. Okay. Um, and so that's the cold, cold press organic oil. So I'll use like a you know, for high heat cooking, for like frying a chicken breast off or something like that, I'll just use a, um, oh, 
an organic canola oil. Make sure if you're using canola, it's an organic canola oil or an organic peanut oil. Um, one of those because they will stand up to real high heat cooking. Let's talk a little bit about uh, lettuce. You mentioned that, and I'm curious about your process between you bring the lettuce home and how do you clean, prepare your lettuce for the table? What's your process? You know, what I usually do is rinse it off. Break it, if it's in a head, I break it apart, uh, rinse it off, and don't dry it thoroughly, but wrap it in toweling and then put it in a plastic bag in the refrigerator to hold it. And what happens is that the leaves um, absorb a little bit of that moisture. The towel absorbs the rest. So it keeps it damp without soaking it. But that tends to keep it a little bit fresher. And those lettuces are so fresh, they've been picked that day, that they, they'll hold up to a week. So then are you eliminating the need for a salad spinner by wrapping it in the towel? I am, yeah. You know, I don't use a salad spinner. I think with the delicate leaves, it damages them. Yeah, I mean, what I will do sometimes is, and this is an old trick from catering, is if you have, if you're doing a big party and you have a lot of lettuces that you need to clean quickly, if you rinse them and throw them into a clean pillowcase and whisk it around a little bit, you'll get most of the moisture out. That's a great little tip. Yeah. Now, we talked a little bit about all the different kinds of things that are happening at farmer's markets. And I know that the managers of these farmers markets are trying to incorporate educational and recreational activities into their markets to just continue to draw a diverse group of people. Could you share some of the more creative things that you've seen like this at farmers markets that you think sure. are, are a great draw for folks? They're great. Yeah, well, I love what they're doing with kids. Um, at the St. Paul Farmers Market, they have wonderful activities where the kids, you know, they're drawing activities where they're taking the fresh vegetables and they're drawing pictures or they're matching up the vegetable onto a picture that's already drawn. Um, and they have skipping games and things like that with the vegetables. Um, so those are really fun for the kids. And it means that the parent can go and know that the kid is going to want to come back, right? Um, they also often, many of the markets have chefs that come and demonstrate some recipes using the fresh produce from the market. I think those are always fun to watch and to taste. Um, so they have those things going on. Master gardeners at the market can talk about, you know, how to, you know, deal with your vegetable garden or troubleshoot. I think those are helpful. You know, all that kind of stuff. There are composters that show up and talk to people about how to get a compost bin going. So there's, there's all kinds of great stuff like that. There's an often music, wonderful bands that come and play and food trucks that serve interesting food. So, yeah, they're fun. They are fun. I know I was at a uh, farmer's market recently, and they had gotten a grant to give uh, the kids that came to the farmer's market a dollar that they could go oh, and purchase something with, which I thought was just tremendous. That's a great idea. That's a really great idea. Beth, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this whole edible landscaping scene. People are so interested in it. I've got a lot of shows coming up featuring guests that are experts in the area of edible landscaping. But to me, it just seems like that would translate into a corresponding increase in the amount of interest in farmers markets as well. You know, it's, it's wonderful that people are paying attention to that. We're seeing vegetables being worked into people's backyards in a way that they used to work in zinnias or roses. Um, and I think it's great because it's high and useful these plants are. Um, and the, the farmers are great at explaining how to grow things. You know, if you're interested in doing that and you have, um, you know, lots of help doing it, it's always fun to talk to a farmer about how they're doing it. 
I agree. I think growers are very generous with information when it comes to new gardeners looking for tips on how to grow a crop they're not familiar with. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. Now, there's a new movie that's called A Place at the Table, and it addresses the fact that there's a billion people in the world who are food insecure and another billion that are overfed and undernourished. And I also just read that one in four Americans don't have enough food to eat. Same with Greece. We should be focusing on hunger and health in our own backyards. How can supporting farmers markets play a role in addressing these issues? We're we're talking about, we're really talking about access and opportunity. So there is a move to um, help people get farmers markets into areas of underserved populations. So that, you know, there are more youth gardening programs where those youth can sell at a farmer's market, in a parking lot, in an underserved area. We're seeing a lot of that going on in Minneapolis, and it's really wonderful. Um, There's a tourist program called Youth Farm and Market Project, which um, has the youth working in youth city funds to run this program to have the youth learning to garden on these small plots, city plots, Um, And then they sell that produce at markets in their communities. And that's been terrific because the youth learn how to garden and they learn how to cook um, because they cook their own lunch every day. So it's a day-long program. They start at like 9 in the morning and they go to about 4. And so they cook for each other in crews. um, And they sit down and they eat these lovely meals. And then they learn how to cook and they bring that knowledge back into their own homes along with the food that they've learned to grow. So that's been very impactful. Um, I think one of the, the issues is that many people that think they can't afford to go to a farmer's market don't realize that they can use their EBT cards at a farmer's market. You know, those are like food stamps. So you can still use your EBT allotment that you'd use at a grocery store at a farmer's market instead. So those are two, you know, those are really two things. The other thing is that people have forgotten how to cook. So um, the efforts by these community groups to have community cooking classes and community canning classes, I think, has also been impactful, and hopefully we'll see more traction with that. That's great. In the closing minutes here, uh, do you want to share with the uh, listeners your what your new venture is and what you're working on? Oh, you're nice to ask. Actually, I'm, I just have dug into the revised manuscript for a book that's forthcoming in 2015, called In Winter's Kitchen, and it's the kinds of things that we were just talking about. It's, you know, how getting to know the farmers and the people that grow my food has really changed a lot of things in my life, you know, the way we eat, the way we talk about food, the way we connect with each other, and my understanding of what it means to live a sustainable life. And so the stories are about the farmers that I've met, about the cheesemakers and the processors and the producers, and it's really about how they've shared with me so much of their work and made being at the table that much richer because of of what they've told me. That's great, Beth. I love your know your farmer, know your food approach. That's right. That's exactly right. Tell us uh, also where your website is, how how people can get a hold of you, what they might be able to see you at if there's any upcoming events. It's bethdooley.org. So if you go on there, there's a schedule of my appearances and links to shows that I've been on and articles I've written, that kind of thing. 
Well, Beth, I want to thank you for being on the show today. You've been a great guest and just shared so much with us about how to approach the farmer's market with uh, just a, a seeker mentality and just make it into something fun. So I really appreciate all of the information you've shared. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. I'll have details and links for everything Beth shared with us today on the show notes for this episode. Just go to my website, sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. Of course, if you like this episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a review on iTunes. Or if you're listening at Stitcher Radio, please hit that little thumbs up button. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you all next week. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Episodes and production notes can be found at sixfootmama.com in the top menu under Still Growing Podcast. Of course, you can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash still growing with sixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Once again, Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so normally I end every show with some outtakes from the episode or by looking up something regarding the topic we just covered and having my my kids get involved with reading something. Um, today I have something very special. I was looking for a farmer's market poem that my daughter could read, and I ran across an article that was featured this summer in the Portland Press Herald out of Portland, Maine. And it was about a farmer who not only was going to the farmer's market to sell vegetables from her organic farm, but for $2, she also custom composes and types a poem for customers while they shop on her Olympia typewriter. And once I started reading about this amazing farmer, her name is Holly Morrison of Turnanog Farm in Pownal, Maine, I decided it would be fun to try to track her down and have her read a fresh-pecked poem about a farmer's market just for us. And so through the magic of Facebook, I managed to track her down through the uh, like page for her farm. And she's going to join us and talk to us a little bit about what she does and then read a poem about farmer's markets that she crafted. All right. Well, welcome to Holly Morrison. And Holly is with Tierna Nog Farm in Maine. Holly, where are you from in Maine, specifically? Um, sure. I, uh, I live in the town of Pownal, which is close to Freeport, uh, the, the uh, consumer mecca of L.L. Bean. Uh, okay. But our town is a very small rural area nearby. And where are you at oh. with regard to Freeport? Are you north of that or...? We're just inland, so we're um, to the west, about uh, like a 
10, 15 minute drive inland. We're in between the towns of Freeport on the east side and then North Yarmouth and New Gloucester and Durham on the other side. Yeah, it's just, uh, we, we call ourselves uh, centrally isolated. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a farmer and a forager and a poet. I'm also a teacher of Scottish Gaelic language and music and an ordained UCC minister. All of those things for me are about connection and helping people connect to what feeds them. Uh, We like to, to say that our farm is a place where culture and agriculture meet. And when I go to the farmer's market, uh, I kind of take that ethic along with me. Whether I'm standing in the pulpit or playing in the dirt, I'm thinking about the way elements come together to feed people. really enjoying the process of helping people connect to their creative sources. I love your motto, where culture and agriculture meet. Yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, it's really a guiding principle for us. Now, what's your background? I mean, you must have gone to school for writing or something. I've always done creative writing just as a an outlet for myself. I trained as as an ordained minister. The town that I grew up in had a lot of arts programs, um, so I really grew up benefiting from those. Had a lot of people around me who were just really unafraid of being creative, expressive people, and and made that seem like something that anybody could do. Although I'm not published in the U.S., um, I actually have been published a few times in Scotland with uh, poetry that I've written and entered into contests over there. Got my fingers in a lot of pies. <laughs> yes, you do. I think that makes you so fascinating. Now, you and I were talking earlier, and you shared the meaning behind the name of your farm. So uh, it's Tirnanog. It's one of the few Gaelic terms that you can actually sight-read uh, without knowing the language, and it literally means land of youth. Uh, but it was this mythical island off to the west from Scotland and Ireland, and when sailors didn't come home in those countries, they'd say, oh, he didn't drown. He just went to Tiernanog. <laughs> and so the idea was that the sailors were off in this place where there was always fruit on the trees and music to greet them and feasting and merrymaking and no suffering. And we figure if you go far enough west from Scotland and Ireland, you hit Maine. So here we are. Now you teach Scottish and Gaelic as well. I sing and write a bit in uh, both uh, Lowland Scots, uh, like Robert Burns' uh, language, and uh, the language of the Scottish Highlands, Scottish Gaelic. (laughs) Now, what do you like to read? I read a lot of of poets. Um, I've just been reading some Mary Oliver. Um, Always enjoy her stuff. Oh, I'm always reading the latest... uh, the latest manual on something about farming. Uh, We've been reading a lot about beekeeping lately. Oh, are you doing that? Yeah, uh, my partner's the beekeeper, um, but uh, it's funny because she's a bagpiper and a beekeeper, so we're always making jokes about drones. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But um, yeah, she's she's really been um, uh, quite impassioned about the whole saving the bees thing, and... um, decided she wanted to learn about uh, alternatives to the standard ways of keeping bees, um, trying to do it without chemicals and pesticides, and um, just she's been trying to learn what it takes to help bees survive in our particular climate and ecosystem. Hmm. And so she's been trying out different hive designs and all kinds of different things. Wow. And what are you most passionate about? What what aspect of gardening or, or farming 
um, excites you the most? Oh, gosh. Um, I think just um, the, the give and take of how, as I'm working to restore the land, the land is, is restoring me as well. Hmm. Um, it's very much this process of mutual restoration, and um, I really love just that process of um, giving things to the soil and then being closely connected enough to really see the natural processes and learn from them so that I'm I'm taking that in and, and um, not just feeding myself with the food, but feeding myself with the wisdom that that the land communicates through those processes. And now you're also feeding others through your poetry. Holly, I found you because I was looking for farmer's market poetry, of all things. And when I Googled that, I found an article that had been written about you in the Portland Press Herald out of Portland, Maine. And it was talking about how you craft poems for people at your local farmer's market. And they are able to come to you with various topics and they commission you to write a poem. And while they go off and shop for produce, you are busy on your Olympia typewriter and you are typing out or pecking out a a freshly minted poem for them. Tell us how this whole thing got started. Sure. Uh, well, we get volunteer farmhands on our farm through an international program called WOOF, which stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And one of our farmhands through that program uh, noticed our old typewriter sitting around, and he said he had worked with a poetry festival in Florida where they had poets at the farmer's market. So he said, well, he could do the same thing if he came along to the farmer's market with me. He set the typewriter up, did a couple of poems, and that was kind of fun while I was selling you know, organic greens and flowers and stuff. And um, then he decided he was going to go to the beach for a little while. Well, before I could take the sign down, right after he left, a lady came up and asked me for a poem. And so I'm standing there with the typewriter, and this fellow has gone, and I figured I might as well try my hand. And the woman really liked what I wrote, so I've been doing poems at the market ever since. I love it. And the article said they were fresh-picked poems. Yes, yes. I say fresh-pecked because, of course, I've got my old typewriter out there. And uh, half the fun of it is that uh, a lot of the younger uh, people who come to the market uh, have really never seen someone working on a typewriter. So it's a little bit of history and and a a fun connection that way, too. Kids are less inhibited about it. Uh, Grown-ups tend to be a little bit afraid of art. Um, but I tend to put a really low price tag on things and then just say you can give me however much of a tip you want above that um, because I'm trying to help people feel like they can they can have access to art the same way they can have access to fresh food. When you're done composing the piece, do you read it aloud then for the customer? I do, definitely. Yeah, um, you know, I, I want people to uh, get a sense of, of poetry as a living, breathing thing and so reading it aloud to them is always a part of that. Um, I, I kind of feel like I'm I'm introducing them to this thing that um, becomes a part of their life and gets to gets to go home with them. Kind of like, you know, like when you adopt a pet or something. I guess I think that they're maybe adopting that poem, so I want to make sure it has a good introduction to them. That, that makes sense, too. Plus, hearing it is very different than reading it, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I mean, traditionally, it was a spoken art form. 
Um, my distant ancestors were bards in Scotland uh, and, uh, you know, composed poetry and songs on demand, probably without ever writing them down. Uh, and traveling bards were popular entertainers and news carriers back in the day. Uh, and um, it was just, it was something people were used to as, again, as an accessible art, um, not something that you had to dust off a book and then take a course to understand. So it, it really should be something that, that people think of as something that can live in their own mouths and ears and minds, and, and um, they don't have to have special tools or, or specialized knowledge to, to really connect with it. All right, let's not keep people in suspense anymore. Let's hear your farmer's market poem. Okay, well, this is a a poem that was actually commissioned by my Farmers Market Association. Uh, I'm a member of the Cumberland Farmers Market Association here in southern Maine. And um, they they wanted me to write a poem about um, the full array of things that, that the market is about and the market experience is about. So uh, this is a poem that I wrote called Let the Market Be Your Muse. Let the market be your muse. Come and taste the farmer's art. Leafy greens and berry blues. Feast your eyes and feed your heart. Golden corn and rainbow chard. See the colors all arrayed. Eggplant skies with goat cheese starred. Wild mushroom cavalcade. Lobster red, a seaside treasure. Savory meats, such meals await. Brush with local herbs and butter. Put some art upon your plate. Fragrant soaps, organic flowers, fresh-baked bread, and music live. Here we are, come sun or showers. Come and help your hometown thrive. Honest work and local dollars, healthy treats to chew and choose. Try it, then you too will holler. Let the market be your muse. Ollie, I loved it. Could have looked through a lot Thank of books you. to find something, and it wouldn't have been as great as that. So that's pretty amazing. So. <laughs> shucks. Oh, shucks, huh? Well, there you go. <laughs> Holly, I tell you what, it's been a complete pleasure. I won't take up any more of your time. You're so welcome. Now, if people want to um, commission you to write poetry for them, I'm assuming they can get a hold of you on your website. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, I do have a blog. Um that there's a link on the farm website to it. Okay. And uh, I, I haven't written as much in that, but you can certainly get a sense of how these different pieces of my life came together and the regular essays that I've written about um, bringing spirituality, Celtic heritage, um, farming, all those different pieces together. And uh, a lot of reflections just about homesteading, living on the land. Yep. Um, and um, then there's also a sermon blog and um, from the church that I serve, uh, just a, it's like a little United Church of Christ church pretty close to where I live. And yep. uh, a lot of those sermons are also full of stories about the farm. So um, you can see, again, that kind of connection to, to different aspects of things and um, a glimpse into to that part of it. I think you're awesome. I think you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I really do. I think it's just adorable. I love it. I love all of it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a place on our farm website where they can contact us about just about anything and uh, explore the different range of, of things that we offer and 
Heck, if you want to buy some locally foraged mushrooms or, um, you know, handmade uh, crafts or whatever else we have available, we can probably do that too. Okay, that sounds great. And I'll make sure I include a link to your website on our show notes today, as well as your Facebook page. They can go ahead and like the Facebook page for your farm as well. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show and for reading that fabulous Farmer's Market poem. Um, And you called it, Let the Market Be Your Muse, right? Correct. That was the name of it. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. Do you got nice weather there today? Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. We had a bit of rain this morning, but now the sun is shining. It's all clear, and I might even get laundry hung outside. That makes me jealous. (laughs) All right. Well, you go, girl, and we'll chat soon. All right, and I will send you a copy of this poem so you have the... uh, the actual written text as well. Yes, that would be great because I will include that and then that'll be nice too for people who are trying to find it and then they can't find it. Yeah, sounds great. All right. Well, Holly, thank you so much. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. 